I've been speaking about <clears throat> Dhamma practice as a practice of, of totality, of practicing Dhamma as a totality. Uh, and increasingly, I'm sure, uh, we're becoming aware that the barriers to practicing this totality are all within our own heart. I've spoken about the awakening of faith, which is the, the opening of the way, that there is a path in response to our deep urge toward authenticity of being and toward liberation, that this faith is a, a deepening confidence over the time of Dhamma practice. Leaning back into the Dhamma uh, is what deepens this faith. It is informed and strengthened by the cultivation or by the springing forth of wisdom. I've spoken of Dhamma energy as the, the activator of this inner process, of this inner life of awakening, the power of right effort and the balance of the courage to persevere and the, uh, and the patience of just abiding in the present moment. Spoken of uh, sati, mindfulness, that soft gaze, pre-verbal awareness, that's knowing things just as they are appearing moment to moment, learning how to become more and more grounded in this awareness, to live out of this awareness. and begin to cut through the uh, proliferating tendencies of the mind. And through this sustained awareness or mindfulness, how the mind becomes, begins to become gathered, collected, unified, perfectly put together, which has the uh, responsive, free-flowing, uh, fluid, capabilities, uh, resting more and more in the present moment, combination of buoyancy and strength. All the subtle layers of the mind begin to become apparent, develop like all the subtle um, sheaths, each sheath that uh, encapsulated the needle that the bodhisattva crafted <clears throat> out of the skillfulness and representing this subtle buoyancy of mind and great power of it. On this foundation of all these facets of mind, and particularly the collected mind, the environment is created for wisdom to spring. And tonight I'd like to speak about this quality of wisdom in the Pali called Panya, what it is. It's helpful to appreciate our work here as that of really creating an environment. We can't make wisdom happen. Its own definition is uh, light in the mind or light in the heart. We can't just will it. It arises due to conditions, due to a, a created atmosphere. And it's very much like gardening where you cultivate the earth. 
You dig it up, aerate it, and you add nutrients to it, uh, compost and so forth. And then you let the, uh, the elements take over, the heat of the sun and the uh, moisture of water, and throw the seeds in. That's all we can do. There's no way to force the germination. In the same way, we're creating this atmosphere, this environment, through the cultivation of the space in which, when its wisdom is ripe, it can spring forth. It's light in the mind is an intuitive, direct understanding. It's not intellect, and it's not concept. In the wake of an insight, there may be reflection, there may be then thoughts about the insight, but it doesn't arise as thoughts, as an intellectual formulation of the experience. The direct illumination of the experience, an attunement, an attunement to Dhamma, to the as-it-is-ness. Wisdom dispels delusion, which is the root of the proliferating process of mind, that part of mind that dresses up uh, our experience into, to make objects look either irresistible, uh, either irresistibly attractive or repulsive. That push and pull of the mind, that's created by this papancha, proliferating process, rooted in delusion, which is dispelled by this wisdom. So what happens is this conjoining of faith, of energy, of mindfulness, of the collected mind, and wisdom into what we could call satipanya, awareness, wisdom, or wisdom awareness. That's what begins to be cultivated uh, in those moments where we're suddenly seeing things just as they are, in the moment that they are appearing, free from thought, free from concepts about them. <clears throat> this wisdom, in the broadest sense, lights our way through the world. And this means particularly our experiential world. What the Buddha spoke of as the world, uh, the word loka in Pali, means the experiential or psychological world, the world uh, as we experience it through our senses, not the earth out there that we stand on. So it's the wisdom that guides, that illumines a path through our experiential psychological world. It shows us that which is beneficial, that which leads us to happiness, that which is harmful, leads us to suffering. The difference between what is skillful and unskillful. It is this wisdom that determines in a moment, given the situation, which course, which path leads to any of these two directions. We don't have to be perfect before we can access this wisdom, this understanding. It's not like we have to wait for it to come. 
We find it coming up in our lives in any number of ways, even in the most difficult of circumstances, or even we could even see it in people who uh, otherwise might live uh, in darkness. Um, and this is even illustrated in the Jatakas. Once upon a time, the Bodhisattva was born in a small village in Kasi, in time beyond memory. And this time, uh, when he grew up, instead of finding trade as a farmer or a merchant, he became a bandit. And he gathered around him 500 other bandits, and he became their chief. And they made their living through highway robbery and housebreaking. <laughs> Even the Bodhisattva was a bad boy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> There was a young boy who <clears throat> his um, mother was on her deathbed and she said, uh, I am owed a thousand dollars and uh, when I die all my land is yours uh, and you'll need this thousand pieces of money. But if I die before you collect it from the person who owes it to me, he won't pay you. So here's where you go and here's what you say and here's how you get it. So the young man uh, did as, as his mother said and went and got the money. In the meantime, while he was gone, she passed away. But she loved her son so much and was concerned about him that she immediately reappeared in the form of a jackal. And her son was coming back and nearing the forest where the bodhisattva bandit and his other bandits were waiting to waylay travelers. And as he neared the, the, the forest, she, she came up to him and kept trying to uh, steer him away from the forest and was speaking in jackal language that he, he couldn't understand, but he was saying, go away. You know, she was telling him, go away, don't go in there. And the young lad uh, was confused and thought that the jackal was just bothering him. So with sticks and clods, he chased her away. At the same time, he saw this crane flying in the air. It too was squawking, squawking about something, but he didn't know what. And he said, oh, good fortune, look at that beautiful bird, I'll follow it. But in fact, this bird was an old foe and had his destruction in mind and was trying to lead him into the forest. Well, the Bodhisattva, as bad as he was, was still quite wise. He knew the language of the animals. So he could tell that the jackal was trying to help the young lad and that the crane was leading him to his doom. But he just sat there and he waited. Pretty soon the young boy came into the forest, was captured by the Bodhisattva, and said, uh, who said to him, um, where have you been? And he said, well, I've been to collect a debt uh, that was owed my mother. And did you get it? The Bodhisattva said, yes, I got it. Do you know where your mother is? Well, she's at home. She's on her deathbed. And the Bodhisattva said, well, she's died. And in fact, she was just trying to help you a while ago. And the very being who was trying to help you, you were pushing away. And the being who was trying to lead you to your destruction, you were following. In your youth and in your folly, you did not know how to listen were the wise words of those who were trying to help you, of she who was trying to help you. 
Keep your money and go along now. And learn to listen to the wisdom. And you let him go. So even as a bad guy, he's a good guy. <laughs> wisdom of the caliber that we are training our hearts toward is, is a wisdom, is an intuitive knowing without a viewpoint. Wisdom without viewpoint, that is, it's a selfless, non-ego-centered understanding. There's no compulsion to um, solidify any particular point of view at all. So the wisdom of the Buddhist teaching, the wisdom of the Dhamma, is without viewpoint. It's just pure understanding in the moment. So what are the insights that happen in mindfulness practice? What is this intuitive, immediate understanding? As the mindfulness intensifies in its power, in its purity, a certain equanimity grows. In fact, the purest mindfulness comes out of this equanimity of mind, the mind that's not reactive, that's not being repelled by the unpleasant, that's not being allured and seduced by the pleasant, but poised in the moment. If it sways this way or that way, it comes back to center. It doesn't get caught. It doesn't stay caught for long. So out of this deep balance, not trying to get anything, not trying to get rid of anything, not having a, a, an agenda, confidently, confidently residing in the present moment with this acceptance of the as-it-isness of our experience, we begin to see all things, the, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the skillful and the unskillful, all of our experience, all of our physical and mental experience, begin to see appears out of causes and conditions. It's not random. It's quite lawful. There's a nature to it. There's a, a pattern to it. It is the relatedness of this to that. The Buddha's whole teaching is, can be distilled down into this being that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. This not being, this does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. This is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. He's describing the way of things, the interdependency of things, the interconnectedness of things. And this is greatly elaborated in his teaching of, of the of dependent origination. Sound waves and the knowing of those sound waves. There is an interrelatedness in that experience. The intention to lift our leg in walking meditation and the process of lifting. There's a whole flow of interconnectedness with that. Karmic predispositions, uh, the environment we grew up in, and certain aspects of our emotional life that we experience in the present moment. These are all not random events. Very intricately interrelated. 
the Buddha understood and revealed about all this experience three, three characteristics of life. That of impermanence, that of unsatisfactoriness or insecurity, and that of selflessness, a selfless nature. He didn't offer these as propositions to be embraced, but rather as revealed truths, they're, they're presented as an invitation to come and see, to experience for ourselves. As a result of insight into these characteristics, we begin to be, be carried by the Dhamma. The, the steps are, are simple. We're teaching, we're teaching how to relax into awareness, how to connect and stay with this awareness, how to allow the sustaining awareness to begin to collect the mind, that, that uh, unified, perfectly put together mind, and then to turn this purifying force of awareness inward onto the mind and body. which then reveals the fundal, fundamental nature of our experience. And then out of that comes an understanding of this nature. It's revealed, understanding deepens, that is, we have a deep insight into the nature of this, of this fundamental experience. And then we learn to live from this understanding. turn this purifying force inward to begin to reveal the fundamental patterns, then to understand the nature of these patterns and to live from this understanding. Revealing the fundamental nature every time that we sit and attune to our bodies. What is the experience of our bodies? The Buddha spoke of our bodies in terms of uh, what he called the four great elements, earth, fire, air, and water. But they all have their um, behavioral experiences, behavioral modalities in which we experience what earth element is, which is anywhere in the whole spectrum between softness and hardness, the experience of of sensations that are like velvet or cotton, smooth, silky, or that are rough and pebbly or like sandpaper, hard. It's the earth element. Every time we feel um, uh, a certain kind of hardness in our bodies, or a certain flow of softness, this is the earth element. Fire element is the whole spectrum between heat and cold. All the temperature, all the ways that we experience temperature in the body. And the air element spans the spectrum between movement or vibration, oscillation, tingling, or vibrating, uh, all those moving kinds of qualities. And on the other end, support, stiffness, firmness, uh, like wind in a sail or air in a balloon. 
It's the supporting air element by which we can, our bodies are held together. We can sit or stand or move. From vibration to support. And the, the um, water element is fluidity. It is that sense of flow with which we experience elements of the body. Or at the other end, cohesion. It's the water element that ties all the others together. Like when you pour water into flour so that the bread sticks together, it uh, coheres. In this way, this is all that we experience in the body. This is the elemental nature of the body. If you go into any, any experience at all, pleasant or unpleasant, tightening, tension, waves of energy, it's all one of these elements. So to reveal the fundamental nature of the body is to reveal the play of these elements and the awareness of these elements. And likewise, as we move through the sense doors, we experience sights, light vibration, and the awareness or knowing of those. Sounds, which are also vibrations, and the awareness of those. Smells, tastes, and the awareness of these. They're interdependent. They're interconnected. They behave in a lawful nature. What we're tuning into, what's being revealed, is the unique nature of these things. Or we experience the, the multitude of mental events, thoughts, images, uh, mental patterns, emotions, feelings. These two aren't chaotic, as chaotic as they sometimes seem. There are conditions for which they arise. We try to attune to know their unique nature. What is a moment of fear? What is a mind moment of fear? What does that fear feel like? What kind of tone does it create in the heart and the mind? Does it unify? Does it split? Does it light, lighten? Does it darken? Does it uh, make one feel together? Does it make one feel split asunder? All these dhammas are here for us to investigate, not to hold on to or push away. We explore fear in the same way that we would explore joy. It's just this feast of mental events in which our, our task is simply to see, to understand. What is their unique nature? We anchor our awareness in, in uh, the appearing objects. That is, we become aware as these objects of mind and body appear much in the same way that you turn on a flashlight to see them clearly as they appear. At other times, we anchor our awareness in sort of the sphere of this awareness in which objects are appearing, which is more like open sky, choicelessly aware. Both of these are simply skillful means. One's not better than another. At times, it's sort of the the flashlight beam approach that the mind is inclined toward and that helps reveal the nature of things. At other times, it's been more anchored in this choiceless awareness, this sort of sphere of awareness within which all the objects of experience are appearing. 
and the inclination is not to go beam-like from object to object, but just to notice their appearance and vanishing. A form of wisdom is in skillful means, the tools that we use, the tools that we're taught in practice. Sayadaw put a lot of emphasis, Sayadaw Upandita, my teacher, into um, firmly establishing our grounding oneself in the four foundations, in the awareness of body, feelings, mind, and the objects of mind. And he really took care over, ye- over the years to see that, that students understood well which each, which each of these foundations are, because they were like the, the land of one's ancestors, the, the firm and familiar ground, you know, out of which, if we left, becomes a foreign land, and we're subject then to being overcome or diluted by Mara. So he spoke of establishing and developing a, a deep sense of, of place in these four foundations. <clears throat> and he used skillful, different skillful means approach to understand. After several months of practice, some uh, one time, um, in over the years of practicing with Saida, there was a period of time when uh, I wasn't experiencing very many thoughts. They seemed very uh, infrequent, and I was reporting this to Saida. And he then gave this technique in which I was to place my awareness right at the top of my head and then in a line very slowly move down the front about half an inch at a time. And I would just stay in one spot until the awareness could feel a sensation and then move. You know, sometimes in the whole sitting I might have only gotten to my nose, but slowly I, I took this technique in, went down the front, went down the back, went down each side. And very soon I knew exactly what it was he wanted me to discover. Because even though the mind was very collected and the thoughts weren't appearing very much or interfering, what I noticed in that very meticulous and careful, slow mindfulness was a, a substratum, a stream of thought that was always there, constantly there. And he didn't tell me this, you know, before he gave me the technique. But then I went back, and his um, his skillful means approach did just what he had intended it to do. So understanding this nature. After it's revealed, after we begin to see what it is that comes up, from the very obvious to the very subtle, from all the sensations in the body and the obvious emotional and feeling states to the ones we don't even think are there, then it can take a step deeper into understanding this nature. We become more anchored in satipanya, the uh, wisdom, awareness, 
where we begin to see the very nature of these things. And our, our anchor moves from watching more the things, being anchored more in the awareness of things, to being anchored more in the nature of things, in the awareness of the nature of things. So at first, mostly the mind is <clears throat> drawn to sensations and sounds and sights and thoughts and so forth. After a while, uh, instead of being grounded in the awareness of these particular unique objects, it, there's a shift that can happen into where we're grounded more in the awareness of how these objects behave. What is their nature? What is their pattern? And what's revealed is what the Buddha taught in these three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Things that are true for all beings and for all times and with all experience because they're, they're fundamental, they're uh, archetypal aspects of our existence. Anicca. Anicca is the inherent nature of change. Ordinary awareness is unable to notice this change because it's happening so fast that there's the illusion of solidity with regard to what is in constant process. It's not just that everything actually um, eventually changes and passes away. You know, as we know in uh, looking at the seasons, or in tides, or in aging our bodies. Rather, it's that all conditioned things, all experience is in constant process. That what wisdom experiences is this pulsation of energies in the mind and body. All phenomena, all experience are seen to be falling away almost the, the moment they appear. The duration is hardly even noticeable. Out of that deep equanimous awareness, we see through the seemingly solid. An experience begins to be presented in its true form, more in its fluid nature, more transparent. As if everything begins to take on this transparency. Everything meaning our mind-body experience, the sense of our bodies as being solid, begins to feel more porous and more like this constant flow or vibration. And the mind even more so much more so how quickly thoughts, mind moments, thought moments, feelings are appearing and vanishing. It's like if at first you sit by um, a river and look in a certain area of the river, certain uh, boundary vision, and you start noticing all the components of the river, little eddies, bubbles, and rocks and leaves, twigs, everything that makes up that river. You, you notice all these different pieces of it. 
And some time goes by. And you're looking at that same boundaried visual domain. And suddenly, you don't, you don't pick out the particulars anymore. Not by choice, but it all seems to blend. It just seems to be this constant flow. And it's like attuning to the nature of the river. That in the one, one from one perspective, there is all these component parts to it. But on another, an even deeper one, it's that they're all in this ceaseless flow. When we see things more as a flow, there's less tendency to be hooked by their attraction or their repulsion. Because we see how they're changing. There's a tendency to stop trying to grasp on to that twig and that leaf and that bubble that's just going by. Our insight may continue. It may take in a little bit more. We may begin to sense and see how all these passing phenomena aren't dependable. They're continually in flow. They don't provide a support. They don't provide a security. There's a certain unsatisfactoriness to them. It's as if we thought there was a warranty and there isn't any. You know, that there's no true refuge in sensations and in sounds and in taste and in smells and in sights and in emotions and feelings, thoughts. They don't provide a firm ground. So the security we thought was there, that too becomes transparent. This is a little shaky. It's a, a different facet of the same insight. And the ground seems to maybe tumble a little bit uh, underneath us. If there's no enduring satisfaction in these conditioned things, what happens when we want the things to be different than what they are, like when we want them to stay, when we want them to be solid, when we want them to be dependable. When we become attached to what is in this constant flow, the result is a deep sense of insecurity or dukkha. It's unsatisfactory nature. At another key moment in practice with Sayadaw, also after practicing for quite some months, I was reporting all these rather extremely pleasant experiences. I had all these tingly, bubbly feelings in the body. It felt like I was floating and, and uh, almost like levitating. And it was really rapturous, lovely, blissful, happy feelings. And also in the mind, it was very smooth and silky, calm and equanimity and happiness and joy. It was really, really nice. And I felt, I felt this kind of glow. Uh, what I wasn't aware of is that I was quite hooked into it and quite happy with myself in this experience. 
So I just for some days I was reporting these you know, incredible, blissful, tingly, vibrating, rapturous uh, sensations and mind states and so forth. And so I'd all, you know, he just didn't budge one way or the other. But one day, when he looked quite bored, he said, um, I have something I want you to do. I want you to just focus on the, the second satipatthana. That is the awareness of, of the feeling tone of experience, pleasant or unpleasant, or neither, neutral. So I made uh, such a resolve, and I just began to observe all experience, not in their unique nature, as various mental states, calm and joy and so forth, are blissful, tingly feelings, but in their, their uh, affect, in that tone of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Well, for me at that time, it was all, it was mostly pleasant. So for the first day or so, I was just being mindful of pleasant feelings, pleasant feelings, pleasant feelings, pleasant feelings, pleasant feelings. <laughs> and then pretty soon, it was just feelings, feelings, <laughs> feelings. And after a while, it was, it was dukkha. But, but not unpleasant. It wasn't like I was feeling pain. But I got the point, and again, this, the, the mastery of skillful means, of Sayadaw's instruction, was that all these pleasant feelings, no matter what, in the mind and body, were constantly falling away. They weren't really dependable. And what I was attaching to would inevitably e lead to pain. Because when it went away, I would try to repeat the experience. You know, I would try to hold on and keep it from going away, which is what the nature of attachment is, just clinging. And again, it was such a, a brilliant instruction. You know, and I went and reported, you know. It's not painful, but it's dukkha. You know, it's, it's really unsatisfactory. It's just passing away. And it just cooled the mind for the time being from attachment. Such insight, then, into dukkha has joy as a result, not more dukkha. Not seeing the nature of things, not understanding the nature of things is, is really more dukkha. It's not oppressive to have an insight into the nature of dukkha. It's oppressive to carry around the burden of our attachments to things to feel the weight of mind and body experience without the understanding. Not understanding is what is oppressive. As we begin to understand, it is the nature of that understanding, that is that intuitive and immediate seeing as it is, that begins to let go, that first begins to accept, huh, this is how it is. And in that understanding, Letting go just begins to happen, not like a decision. So such insight brings joy. It brings an enlargement of our sense of ourselves, of the sense of well-being. Not a diminishment. It's not adding a burden. It's a relief.
at one other, still another retreat, um, at two retreats in a row, a couple years apart, each of several months. And uh, it was like the, the first two noble truths. It was like all, you know, the dark side. First two noble truths present the dark side. The second two noble truths present the light side. The Buddha offered us this complete and whole picture. So that one retreat was really all about dukkha, mind and body dukkha, and the other all about desire. I can't remember exactly which retreat it was, but at one point, you know, there was this, this, this sutta passage that I always had a revulsion to because it describes our bodies as, as a pain, as a dart, as a festering wound, as a sore, as a boil, you know, and all these things are, you know, yuck. <laughs> I don't need that, and our Western culture doesn't need that because we're so disconnected from our bodies. But there's this one retreat where I was, it was the, again, it was deep in the retreat, there's a lot of uh, balance of mind, and I was just looking at this body watching the body, really well-established in body. And I began to see it in a very positive way as I felt it like a, a wound because I felt its fragility. And I suddenly knew what the Buddha meant by that sutta, you know, our, our very vulnerability and fragility. You know, he used more poignant words. So I went to Sayadaw and I said, you know, so he understood, you know, it's hard to tell Sayadaw I feel fragile and vulnerable, but he can hear it when you say, I feel the body as this boil and this festering wound. And, and I said it, you know, not with despair or revulsion, because that's not the aim of it. He got so delighted, you know. <laughs> he pulled out his poly book and he said, you know, there's 25 descriptions. And he went on describing boil, dart, festering wound, sore, spear. <laughs> until he went through all 25. <laughs> but the insight was healing and empowering and liberating. It wasn't carrying a weight. The insight into this inherent change, seeing it from another perspective, that all the phenomena are unstable, they're not dependable, uh, ultimately, that they at best only present a, a, uh, a short sense of security. But finally, there is, is no refuge in our experience of conditioned things. Another facet of the same insight into the nature of things, into the as-it-isness of things, is what the Buddha described as sabe, sabe dhamma, Anatta. All things, all natures, are without an inherent ego entity, a substantial, enduring ego entity. That our mind-body experience configures in all these patterns that we ascribe this name of I, or Stephen, or Michelle, or Steve, but it's just, it's descriptive. It's a designation of this process. There's no ultimate meaning. It's not referential in its term, I, me, or mine. It's reflexive. It describes this process. It refers to the dhammas, 
but these dhammas are not self. The sati panya, the awareness wisdom, uh, is the intuitive experience of moving right into our experience of ourselves and seeing them as process, as dhamma, as flow. As flow in all its particular nuances, because we all have certain very unique and very individual um, natures, personalities. It's not that we lack a personality. It's that there's, there's no enduring entity behind it all. Ignorance and the wisdom that realizes selflessness take the same object, this mind and body. But they view it exactly opposite. Ignorance views this as, a, as an ego-centered entity behind this process, or as this process. And the wisdom views it as no substance behind it, as dhammas, just as a flow of dhammas. No entity that is behind it. So it's wisdom that dispels the, the delusion of a solid, separate sense of self. It illumines instead the, the nature of as it isness. This is, this is the marvel of the Buddhist teaching. That there's only Dhamma. There's only this lawful nature. But these Dhammas are not self. They're without a core or substantial self. This is not the wrong view of annihilism either. It's only attachment and suffering that are annihilated. It's only attachment and suffering that are extinguished. In one of the Buddhist suttas, someone was accusing him of being uh, a nihilist. And in response, the Buddha said, I'm not negating an existent being. I'm not negating an existent being. What I teach is merely suffering and the end of suffering. was his response. But there's, this only, there's only these dhammas. And finally, there's only this undying dhamma. It's called the deathless. Without birth, without aging, without pain, without death. The undying dhamma. So, we learn to, to relax into this awareness, this sati. We learn how to connect and sustain the sati on our experience of the mind and body, to turn it inward and connect, stay with the mind-body experience, to reveal the nature of our experience, to understand this nature, and then to begin to live from this understanding. 
There are many conditions for the wisdom, and I've spoken just about some of the, of the environment that we need to create for this satipanya. The insight into the three characteristics is a, a potent impetus for detachment, for non-attachment, for living from this place of non-attachment. Without metta, without compassion, neither this insight, neither this wisdom, nor the true non-attachment is possible. It must be present to guide the awareness, to guide the insight awareness. Or what's liable to develop is a pathological detachment. That is where we're removed from life where we're aloof, barren, judgmental, disconnected, separate from life. Genuine, liberating detachment has compassion, has metta at its core. not separate from experience. It's not holding on. It's not tied by expectation. It's not tied by our need to control this experience. Genuine non-attachment is the generosity of possibility of then being able to develop genuine, intimate, caring relations and sense of connection with the world, with the planet. Such detachment liberates us from being victimized by our experience of life and instead orients or centers around and values loving-kindness and compassion, equanimity, wisdom. So it looks like there's time to close with a Jataka tale, which uh, it's, a, uh, it's one of my favorites because it brings together this, the teaching of wisdom and, it, and the inseparability, as I think you'll get from the end of it, of, of coming into awareness only when there's this atmosphere, careful at, carefully constructed atmosphere of compassion and love, uh, which I'll speak more about in, in my next talk. In this life, our beloved great being was born as a swift, golden goose, who lived at a place called Mount Chittakuta, and he became the chief of 90,000 other geese. One day, near, his, near their abode, the place that they hung out in the uh, Himalayas, they flew down and ate some wild rice that was growing in a certain pool, and sporting and playing by the pool. And then he 
flew very quickly over the nearby city of Benares. So quickly, it was like this golden blanket over the whole city. That's how fast he flew back and forth. And the king of Benares looked up and saw him. And he said, that must be a king. I wish to know him. So he sent his attendants out with uh, unguents and perfumes and garlands and, and musicians uh, sort of beckoning. And the great being said to, to his friends, he said, oh, you know, what's going on down there? And they said, I think he's trying to make friends. And he said, okay, then let's be friends. So the king of Benares one day was in his park at a certain lake called Lake Anatota. And the great being, the golden goose, flew up on one wing with water and on the other wing with sandalwood powder. And he sprinkled the water on his new friend. And then he sprinkled the sandalwood powder, which is a very cooling kind of cosmetic commonly done for thousands of years in India. And after that, the king just longed for his friend. You know, whenever he'd come, he'd be so happy. They became fast and close friends. Now, there were two young geese in the boat in the Great Beans tribe. Um, one young male and an older female. And they thought, gee, let's, let's try to fly fast, you know, like our, like our own chief. So they went and they asked him, you know, we want to race the sun. And the Bodhisattva said, no, the sun's too fast. And they asked again. The Bodhisattva said, no, you know, you don't know your limits. You would perish if you tried to race the sun. And they asked for the proverbial third time. The Bodhisattva still said, no, you know, you must accept your measure and not try to race against the sun. But of course, as all young children should be, they were rascals. So they got up before dawn, and they went up to this mountain called Mount Yagandara. And there they waited for the sun to come to the peak. And the Bodhisattva awoke before sunrise. And even though he had 90,000 uh, geese in his tribe, he missed them. He said, ah, oh, they must be up to shenanigans. Let them be as they will. I will go and help them. So he flew up and mounted on Mount Yagandara, just about the time the sun hit the peak, and off they flew, the three of them. Well, sometime around uh, forenoon, uh, the young male goose began to falter. It felt as if fire was uh, in his wings, and he began to fall. And he looked up at the great being and said, Brother, I can't make it. I'm going to perish. And the great being, soothing him with kind, lovely words, says, don't worry, you know, I will help you. He took him on his wing and flew immediately back to Mount Chittakuta and put him in the carrying arms of other of the geese. And he swooped back immediately and caught up with a young female who was stronger and flew well into the afternoon. But in time, she too, began to grow weak, and it was this fire was building and kindled, kindled in her wings, and she began to drop. 
And she became afraid. She said, Brother, I am falling. I can't make it. Bodhisattva said, Don't worry. You know, I will help you too. And soothed her, took her on his wing, and quickly came back, back to Mount Chittakuta and put him in the caring, serving arms of the other geese. And he thought to himself, Today, I will test myself against the sun's strength. And in one swoop, he came up to Mount Yagandra. And he took the leap. And again, in one swoop, he caught up with the sun. And then went in front of the sun and behind the sun and in front of it again. And he thought, this is folly. Now, why am I doing this? I think I'll go see my friend, the king of Benares, and talk Dhamma with him. But before he did that, he flew from one end of the earth to the other and back again and back again. Back ahead into where the land that is dark and way back into the land that's still dark. Either side of the sun. And then he slowed down a bit and he sped across all of India. He slowed down a little more and he sped across 12 leagues all around Benares. So fast, so very fast. It was like a golden canopy covered all this 12 leagues over Benares. And there was this golden shadow that came down in all the area. There was not a crack, there was not a crevice. And then as he slowed down a little more, little holes appeared, and little crevices. And in the light, the sun could shine through this canopy until he slowed down completely. And the canopy disappeared. And then he alighted right on the window of his dear, beloved friend, the king. It was so overjoyed to see him. He said, come in, come in, and set him on his own golden seat and said, anything you want here is yours. And he offered him wild rice, uh, sweetened, and sugared water in a golden bowl and, pre and presented it to him. And he said, I'm so glad to see you. You make my heart so happy. And he said, what have you been doing today? <laughs> so the great being told him the events of the day. And he said, can you show me this swiftness against the sun? Bodhisattva said, I could not show it to you. And his friend, the king, said, can you show me something like it? And Bodhisattva said, I can show you something like it. Fetch your four foremost lightning-fast archers. So the king did. Two very fast women and equally fast men. And then they went down from the, the palace into the courtyard. And the great being asked for a stone pillar to be erected and asked that a bell be tied around his neck. And he got on top of the stone pillar and he had each of the archers, two women, two men, fastest in all of India, lined up facing the four directions, north and south, east and west. And the Bodhisattva said, when I give the signal, I want you each to shoot at the same time with your most lightning fast uh, speed in the four directions. I will pick up the arrows before they touch the ground and they will be placed at your feet and you'll never see me move. <laughs> The king said, I want to see this. <laughs> so the great being was on top of the pillar and he gave the signal. And the four archers shot in the four directions. 
so fast you couldn't even see the arrows. The bodhisattva got all four arrows, placed them at their feet, and was back on the pillar, and no one saw him move. It was just the ringing of the bell tied around his neck. King said, that's fast. (laughs) The bodhisattva said, it's not fast. He said, it's the slowest of the slow of all my speeds. The king king then said, is there anything faster than that? The bodhisattva, is there anything faster than your fastest speed? The king said. The bodhisattva said, faster by 100 times. Nay, 1,000 times. No, faster than 100,000 times than my fastest speed possible is the speed with which all the elements of life in all living beings are passing away moment to moment. (laughs) With that, the king fainted. (laughs) And his attendants had to bring the unguents and smelling salts to bring him back. And the Bodhisattva, his friend, was right there for him when he came back to consciousness and he said, Bodhisattva said to him in a honey-sweet voice, he said, don't be afraid of impermanence. Understand it. Just understand it. And then he gave a beautiful short Dhamma talk about living out of generosity, about living righteously, caring and nurturing the realm, bringing equality and justice to all the people and all the beings there, and practicing mindfulness. And then the, um, the king said, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.